Well, good morning. I am uh, very thankful to be with you this morning. I always enjoy being in Danville and having the privilege of sharing God's word with all of you. Now, I don't know about you, but I am ready for spring. Believe it or not, I love the winter season. It's actually probably my favorite, but just this week, I finally reached the point. I was walking out to my car, and I prayed. I literally prayed, Lord, I'm just tired of being cold. Bring on spring. And I think he's given us a little taste of that this weekend. You're welcome, maybe. But he's going to put me in my place soon, as uh, I think Matt brought up. Now, maybe I lasted a little longer than some of you. I know for some of you, that first cold day, you're like, Lord, come on, bring on spring. But I really do enjoy the cold, but I am ready for spring. And I'm ready to to see the the season begin to change as we get to see things that that were dead and dying come back to life. As grass grows green and flowers begin to to blossom, they begin to grow. This seasonal cycle is a wonderful picture and reminder of the gospel. It's a wonderful reminder of how God makes things new. How he takes the dead and the dying and he gives them new life. Now this morning we're wrapping up our series in 1 John titled Assured where John has been writing so that those who believe in Jesus Christ might know that they have eternal life. Just like the changing season gives us a picture of new life, if you are in Christ, you too have been brought from spiritual death, spiritual dying to new life in Christ, eternal life. So before we dive in, would you bow your heads with me and pray? Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you for this letter of 1 John. Lord, that I pray has convicted us, has encouraged us, and by your spirit has grown us as a body to be more like Christ. Lord, I pray and know this morning that it's not my words, Lord, it's not my thoughts that are worth anything, Lord, but your word your spirit working in all of us. So Lord, as we talk as a family about your word in this last section of 1 John, Lord, may it not be about us, but about you. Lord, may we grow to be more like you and may your spirit work in all of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you've been with us for any portion of the series, you will remember that throughout 1 John, we run across three different tests. Three tests to examine our lives to help us have assurance of the eternal life we have in Christ. And I know testing ourselves, testing yourself can be a little uncomfortable, but John is not alone in challenging believers in this way. Paul encourages us to do just the same thing. In 2 Corinthians 13.5, Paul writes, examine yourselves. To see whether you are in the faith, test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. See, Paul's making the same exhortation here as John has been over and over. Test your faith. Examine yourselves. John has been urging us 
to test our lives against what God's word calls believers to, a life of truth, a life of love and a life of obedience to God's word. I think when we, if we're honest, when we test and examine our lives, it can be a little uncomfortable. I think it can honestly be a little uncomfortable because we don't always like the results of the test. I think if we're honest, I think we'd prefer to, to stay comfortable. I don't think anybody likes to take tests. But I think, honestly, that at times is our culture talking. We have a culture that loves comfort. A culture where comfort is king. We have comfortable cars, comfortable homes, comfortable relationships, comfortable faith. And we've even gotten to the point now that we have comfortable truth. Truth that is squishy and adjusts to what you like or prefer. But you see, John, throughout this letter, has been pointing us to the truth. The truth that as believers, we can have assurance of our faith by examining our lives in the area of truth, our doctrine, in the area of love, how we love one another, and in the area of obedience to God's word. I think John wants us to be a little uncomfortable, to humbly test and examine our lives. And honestly, I hope, like me, you have all been a little uncomfortable as we've been going through this series, as we test and examine how we're doing with truth and obedience and love. I want to encourage you, though, because if you have found yourself uncomfortable, if you've found your test results not to be so exciting, that you've fallen short, and that's led you to repent, to cry out to, to God for help, then Brothers and sisters, be assured that his spirit is working in you. And God has you right where he wants you. You see, God's word says that he opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So be encouraged that God is working in you. And remember that your assurance does not come from what you do, but rather by knowing whose you are. I hope this has been an encouragement to you. Let's finish our letter of 1 John. Go ahead and open your Bibles with me to 1 John chapter 5. Our passage this morning begins in verse 13, and we're going to finish the book today. You can find the passage, I believe, on eight, page 805 in the auditorium Bibles. Please read along with me, 1 John chapter 5, starting in verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. 
He is the true God in eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Now the first verse of our passage, I hope, sounds pretty familiar as we've referenced it really throughout the entire series as John explicitly tells us why he's written this letter. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know you have eternal life. Now, I've already mentioned the three tests that John's been pointing us to throughout this letter, but I found a a commentary on 1 John from a Scottish pastor named Robert Law that does an excellent job expressing what John is referring to by these things that he was writing about. Robert Law says this. He says, with St. John, the grounds of assurance are ethical, not emotional, objective, not subjective, plain and tangible, not microscopic and elusive. They are three, or rather they are a trinity, belief, righteousness, love. By his belief in Christ, his keeping God's commandments and his love to the brethren, a Christian man is recognized and recognizes himself as begotten of God. I think this quote summarizes beautifully what John was and has written throughout this letter. Essentially, if you are in Christ... These are the fruits of the Spirit in your life you should expect to see. You see, John hasn't been giving us the the fluffy, comfortable, what's true for you is true for you truth that our culture wants us to buy into, but rather he gives us ethical, tangible, objective truth so that you who believe in the name of the Son of God may know that you have eternal life. Now, the rest of our passage gives us, I think, three wonderful truths that as believers we may know in light of our eternal life in Christ. Three things this morning that I hope encourage you and spur you on, and myself as well, in our walks with the Lord. And if you are here this morning and you do not believe or you don't know that you have eternal life in Christ, I want to encourage you and ask you to listen closely to what God promises for those who are in him. So first, as believers, we should know that God hears us. Read verses 14 and 15 with me again. It says, and this is the confidence that we have toward him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. Now this is a big deal. It doesn't honestly get much better than that. This is quite a statement for John to make. We not only should ask God, but we should have confidence toward him when asking Little tiny old us, small people on this giant rock in this giant universe have God's ear. The creator of all things hears us. God hears you. Now there's an important qualifier in this verse concerning what we ask. It says if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us and we know that we have the requests That we have asked of him according to whose will? His will. God's will. Not not my will. Not John's will. God's 
will. You know, I think our relationship with God as our Father really helps bring clarity to what John is getting and telling us here. As most of you know, I am a father. I have seven children. Yes, I said seven. I have six running around here. I have one I haven't met yet that's just hanging out in my wife's belly due to make their appearance in July. There you go. Now seven's the biblical number of completion, so I, <laughs> I'm hoping and praying. <laughs> Praise God. Now, my children make requests of me all the time. Maybe they even make more requests of my wife. But you see, that's good and it's normal. And in fact, as God's children, he wants you to make requests of him all of the time. In Philippians 4, 6, it says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. In everything, it says, let your requests be made known to God. God wants to know your requests. God wants to hear from each and every one of you about everything going on in your life. But you see, as a father... I do not always grant my children's requests. Now, if I'm being honest, unfortunately, at times, I I don't grant them because I'm lazy or I don't feel like they earned it. But you see, when I'm at my best, I do not grant their requests because as their father, I am trying to do what I think is best for them. I'm, I'm praying. I'm hoping to discern what is best for my children. And often, that is not to give them what they request. Now, our Heavenly Father likewise hears all of our requests. And according to His will, He either grants or declines that request. But instead, you see, of of praying and hoping and trying to discern what is best for His children like I do, He knows exactly what is best. See, Romans 8.28 tells us that for those who love God, he is working all things. How many things? All things together for their good, for those who are called according to his purposes. God knows what is best, and he answers our prayers according to his will, for his glory and for our good. Let me give you an amazing example of this found in Scripture. See, do you realize, and this really stood out to me this week, that God didn't grant one of Jesus' requests? Luke chapter twenty-two, forty-two. Jesus withdrew to pray at the Mount of Olives. He knelt down and prayed and says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. You see, Jesus here makes a request. God hears him. But Jesus already knows and even acknowledges in his prayer that the Father's will will be done. And thank God he didn't remove that cup. The cup of God's wrath that Jesus was about to experience during his crucifixion. The cup that every one of us in this room rightfully deserves. But instead, according to God's will, that wrath was poured out on Jesus instead of us. 
And how'd that work out for God's people? You see, now Jesus is reigning supreme as the the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, seated at the right hand of the Father and his people. For believers, the wrath that you and I deserved was poured out on Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. So now for those who believe in him, their sins may be forgiven and they can have eternal life in Christ. It seems to me like God our Father knows best. Brothers and sisters, know that God hears us. He wants us to make our requests known, but also know that God knows best. He knows what is best for his children as our perfect, loving Father. Not my will, but yours be done should be a staple in our regular prayer lives. Now there's a false gospel in our country, and unfortunately it's being exported all over the world. You see, it plays off of and it twists and turns passages like verse 14 and 15 out of context and says you can have everything you want as opposed to everything you actually need. This is known as the prosperity gospel. And you see, the biggest issue with the prosperity gospel is Jesus actually wants to give you even more than you could ever think and imagine. However, that comes from eternal life in him forever, not necessarily through prosperity in this life right now. God knows best. You see, God doesn't want you to live your best life now but instead to live your best life with him for all eternity, to have eternal life. As Jesus says in Mark 8, 36, what does it profit a man to gain the the whole world and forfeit his soul? What does it profit us to gain every request we may have in this life only to forfeit our soul? You see, I'm convinced by the word of God that God often doesn't grant our requests for comfort, for wealth, for health, because he knows that in reality, those things might not be good for us. In fact, it could be bad for us. Those in themselves are not bad things, but God knows best. God wants us to depend on him. You see, he wants us to find our satisfaction, our joy, our hope, our supreme pleasure, our salvation in Christ, and Christ alone. God hears us. And when we pray according to his will, we can know we have those requests. Now, the next couple of verses of our passage, verse 16 and 17, I think actually they give us an example of asking for something according to his will, as well as an example of asking something that isn't according to his will. Read verse 16 and 17 with me again. It says, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. Now John uses some interesting language here, does he not? 
uses interesting language concerning sin not leading to death and sin that leads to death. One's worth praying for, the other is not. So what is John talking about? Chris actually addressed this briefly last week, so I'm just going to move forward and more or less answer the question with what I believe based on the context and John's purpose in writing this letter, what he's talking about concerning these different sins. You see, first, the sin that does not lead to death is the sin that is forgiven and paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. The sin that does not lead to death is the sin that has been forgiven and paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. Psalm 103.12 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, your sins have been forgiven and they do not lead to eternal death. They have been removed as far as the east is from the west. You can't get any farther than that. And you see, in verse 16, John is actually making an application point for all of us this morning. An application point of how we love each other. How we show our love. So that we pray for one another. When you see a brother or sister in the Lord committing sin, pray for them. You may also be in a position to rebuke them, to reprove them. But I think first and at a minimum, you should pray for them. And you can pray for them with confidence because it is according to God's will. You see, he might not answer that prayer immediately, but God is sanctifying and he will sanctify his people. And one day when he returns, we will be glorified with Christ and we will sin no more. As John said in 1 John 3, 2, that when Jesus appears, we will be like him. So if you see a brother or sister sinning before you talk to someone else, before you come to one of your leaders and ask what to do, or in some cases, can I say it, before you gossip about it, which is a sin, by the way, will you pray for them? And pray for them with confidence that by the power of the Holy Spirit, God would grant them victory. That God would free them from the bondage of that sin in their life. Then go to them with love, speaking truth and love and encourage them by the word of God to walk in righteousness. And if that doesn't work and they continue sinning, then continue to pray for them. And then talk to another close brother or sister, maybe grab a leader not to gossip, but to partner and pray for your struggling brother or sister. This is the path laid out in Matthew 18. God hears us and he wants us to pray for one another. Now, the other sinning, the sin that leads to death. I know you're at the edge of your seat. If you remember the context of our letter, John has been combating some false doctrine, some false teaching, some false beliefs specifically about Jesus. And the sin that leads to death is the sin of unbelief. The sin that leads to death is the sin of unbelief. You cannot be saved if you don't believe in Jesus. We are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. In order to be saved, you must have faith in Jesus. If someone goes their whole life in unbelief, their whole life in denial of who Jesus is, then that sin leads to death. 
So as an example of a prayer that is not according to God's will would be to pray that someone's unbelief be forgiven. That someone would be forgiven for having no faith in Jesus Christ. I know that sounds harsh, but it just does not work. Now we can and we should pray for someone to repent of their unbelief and turn to faith in Christ But we are not to pray that someone who denies Christ, who doesn't believe in the name of the Son of God, be forgiven of that unbelief. They need to repent and believe. Now, I know that's a little nuanced, but I hope that makes sense. We need to pray for our brothers and sisters, pray for them to overcome and battle the sin in their life. And for unbelievers, we need to pray that their eyes would be opened to see and their ears would be open to hear the good news of Jesus Christ and that they would thus repent of their unbelief, place their faith in Jesus Christ and thus be forgiven. Now before I move on, I want to make a quick announcement, a quick encouragement to take advantage of an opportunity we're all going to have to help us grow in prayer. So starting this Wednesday, February 26, we are going to start out 40 days of prayer leading up to Easter. 40 days of prayer with the Seek God for Our City. Seek God for the City prayer booklets. You can pick one up in the lobby after the service. They even have an app. I think it's a few bucks to download. But it's a great resource, a great prayer guide that leads up 40 days up until Easter. And it has this nice rough cover that you can use as sandpaper when you're done. But please really do grab one, pick it up. Let's join together as the body of Christ. Let's pray together for starting this Wednesday and let's pray together for 40 days looking forward to what God might do in our city on Easter. It's a great opportunity to pray to the God who hears us. And brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ If you believe in the Son of God and you have eternal life, know this morning that God hears your requests. It's a wonderful truth. Our second truth this morning as believers know that God protects us. God protects us. Let's read verses 18 and 19 again. It says, We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. God protects us. You see here, John is connecting back to previous passages in this letter that we've looked at concerning the the obedience or the moral test. Things like not loving the world, not making a practice of sinning. And here at the end of the letter, John wants to drive home our assurance in Christ. You know, I think for many Christians, even though they have placed their faith in Christ, in in the back of their mind, even in the recesses of their mind, they are worried that one day it might just get snatched up. You know, maybe this is you this morning. Maybe in the back of your mind you are worried that the evil one or perhaps the appeal of this world might mess up your walk with the Lord. Well, John wants you to know that God protects us. Remember, if you are in Christ, you are a child of God and God protects his children. 
If you are in Jesus Christ, you have God's protection and the evil one, it says, cannot touch you. You are his. You're not the world's. Therefore, only, or therefore even though the, the, the world lies in the power of the evil one, he has no claim on you. If you are in Christ, you have been purchased by the blood of Jesus. You have been sealed by the Holy Spirit. You are a child of God and there is absolutely nothing that can separate you from the love of Christ. You see, God protecting us is actually an answer to one of Jesus' prayers. One of the things that John does that I think is amazing is he makes this assumption in this letter that his readers have read, they have heard, and they know his gospel account. Recorded in the gospel of John, Jesus prays this prayer. He says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. See, that's part of the high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. And here in 1 John chapter 5, we see Jesus' prayer confirmed. Jesus' prayer request granted. God's people are protected and the evil one does not touch them. Now, Satan may whisper lies into your ears. He may tempt you to sin, which is one of the big reasons we need to know God's word. We need to know the truth. But if you are a believer, the, the popular catchphrase by late comedian Flip Wilson, the devil made me do it, just does not make sense. The Bible says the evil one can't touch you. So he didn't make you do it. The reality is if you are in Christ instead of the devil made me do it, when we sin and mess up, we need to repent of our sins. Turn to Christ. Trust that we are his and as his, as God's children, he protects us. If you are born again, born of God, you will not keep sinning. Maybe instead of the devil made me do it, as believers we can say the Holy Spirit is sanctifying me through it. it. Probably won't work as good for comedy, but it's true. God protects us and he sanctifies his children. Now the third truth I want to discuss this morning for believers is that God enlightens us. Look at verse 20 and read along with me again. It says, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. As I mentioned earlier, there were false teachers and false doctrines circling around at this time that John has been combating and addressing throughout this letter. Some of these false teachers were specifically and talking about a false teaching of Jesus, a false teaching about Jesus not actually coming in the flesh. Essentially, false teaching about who Jesus is. And here John is connecting back to that truth, that doctrine test he's been encouraging us to examine. John wants to make sure we believe in the real Jesus and not some made-up false version of him. 
John's actually arguing that we know Jesus because he actually came in the flesh and made himself known. We can only know God, we can only know Jesus because he revealed himself to us. God enlightens us. He is who gives us understanding so that we might know him who is true. Now I use the word enlightens here for three reasons. First, it's literally the only word I could come up with that fit the format of the first two truths. It's the practical side of preaching sometimes. Two, it is a biblical word, which is good. Paul prays in Ephesians 1.18 concerning believers that having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And three, I use this word enlightens because I'm a little ornery. You see, throughout the years, from John's time all the way through to today, people have falsely made claims about some special enlightenment, some special revelation they receive from God, or some special knowledge about the real truth. You know, and generally all of these enlightenments have come to be something that's above and beyond the Word of God. You see, real enlightenment comes from God by his word. God is who enlightens us. He enlightens us through his word by the work of the Holy Spirit concerning the truth about Jesus Christ. There's not a a special mystery. There's some special knowledge that we need to figure out that enlightens us. Instead, God, God enlightens us through his word. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, Jesus Christ. And our passage says, the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. He is who gives us understanding. So that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God in eternal life. God enlightens us to know him. Jesus Christ humbled himself. He became man and died so that those who believe in him might have eternal life. That we might have a personal relationship with him. There's no other way. No other path. There's no other truth more worth knowing than the truth about who Jesus is. Jesus puts it this way in John 14, 6. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the way. Jesus is the truth. Jesus is the life. There's no exceptions. No other ways to eternal life. This is why we've got to tell people about Jesus. We have the best news in the entire world. The most important truth in the whole world. The truth about who Jesus is. We need to share that truth. We need to share that with people we run into. And we need to pray that God would give them eyes to see. God would give them ears to hear the good news. And pray that through the Holy Spirit, God might enlighten their hearts. As we seek to grow in our relationship with the Lord, this is why we must keep our eyes on Jesus. The author and perfecter of our faith. Focused on Jesus Christ. He is the true God, it says. And eternal life. God enlightens us. 
I want to close this morning with the final verse of 1 John. You know, at first reading, this verse almost seems to be out of place, but it is just where God intended it to be. This final verse is the final exhortation from John, and I think it really sums up his application point of our passage, as well as the application point for this entire letter. I was going to have you read verse 21 with me, but let's actually memorize it. We can all leave this morning having a Bible verse memorized, all right? Are you ready? I'll say it first. You're going to get this. Little children, keep yourself from idols. All right, here we go. We ready? Little children, keep yourself from idols. You guys memorize scripture like that. Everybody says it's hard, but look at it. Just that easy. Little children, keep yourself from from idols. You see, throughout this letter, John has been writing so that those who believe in Jesus, they might know that they have eternal life. We've been discussing what abiding in Christ looks like in truth and love and obedience in our lives. We've considered three amazing truths we can know and have confidence in if we are in Christ. That God hears us, God protects us, God is who enlightens us to the truth about Jesus Christ. And then John ends this whole letter with a direct exhortation. Little children, a term of fatherly love. Keep yourself from idols. You see, John is exhorting us to stay away from the things that can really mess with our confidence in Christ. That can cause us to really doubt what we believe in. That can really blur and obscure our focus on Christ. That can cause us to lose sight of the eternal life that we have in him. Idols. John issues a strong warning. Keep yourself from idols. Now an idol at the simplest form is something that replaces God as our object of worship. In John's time it may have been a literal carven image or a false god. But in essence it is anything that takes our eyes off of Jesus Christ as our object of worship. That takes our eyes off of the way, the truth, and the life. John is warning us, how can we mess up the truth? How can we mess up loving our brothers and sisters in the Lord with Christ-like love and sacrifice? How can we mess up obeying God's word? By focusing on something other than Jesus Christ. By loving something more than Christ. By not fighting idolatry in our lives. By not keeping ourselves from idols and sin in our life. John is telling us, stay away. Get as far away from the idols in your life as possible. Keep yourself from falling into idolatry, from sinning against God by taking your eyes off of him. You see, I believe at the root of of all idolatry is the opposite of what we looked at earlier when Jesus prays, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. You see, the root of idolatry is my will, not yours, be done. When we sin, it's a focus on our will, not God's. As believers, we need to constantly fight against idolatry, constantly fight against sin. We need to fight against the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life. As John warned us back in chapter 2, keep yourself from idols. You know, I think John ends here almost like a mic drop. Imagine this letter 
being read aloud in an early church gathering thousands of years ago. Believers are huddled around listening to every word written from this father figure, the, the Apostle John. who They're confident knows Jesus because he literally spent time walking and ministering with Jesus. And he's been weaving this beautiful tapestry of, of light and love, combating false teaching, encouraging those who believe to know that they have eternal life. And the end of the letter is almost here. And that, what is read out loud is little children. I can imagine the, the anxious ears to hear what is to follow from this affectionate father figure. Keep yourself from idols. The last line just hanging in the room. John knows we need this constant reminder. John knows how much in our flesh we like to keep our idols around. We like to hold on to those little parts of our sinful flesh and never really fully let them go. He knows that we can be so easily satisfied with temporal sinful desires and lose sight of the internal glory we have in Christ. The reality is that we go back to our idols and sins because we don't fully grasp the supreme satisfaction, the, the everlasting joy that comes with our relationship with Jesus Christ. This is why as believers we must abide in Christ. We are to taste and see that the Lord is good. We need to be in fellowship with God through prayer, through quiet time in God's word, through fellowship with one another, the body of Christ. You see, we keep ourselves from idols by focusing on the only one who is worthy of our worship, the only one who is worthy of our praise, Jesus Christ. In this final warning, preceded by such wonderful truths of eternal life that we may know in Christ, reminded me of one of my favorite quotes from C.S. Lewis. He says this, he said, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Brothers and sisters, may we all get out of the mud and truly, truly enjoy the holiday at the sea. Truly enjoy and know, be assured that you have eternal life in Christ. I want to end today by simply reading how John ends his letter with the last two verses. Go ahead and close your eyes and we'll pray in a second. But listen to this amazing truth. It says, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourself from idols. Let's pray.